Hey there, and welcome to the daily podcast where wisdom smacks us with kisses or love taps. I'm Michelle Spiva, a wisdom strengthening coach, your host, and practical priestess of wisdom. Join us daily to gain wisdom and mental strength as we tackle innovative thinking, address emotional and behavioral life traps, and yes, provide you with some practical how-tos to wrap it all up. So settle in or crank up the speed 2x, whatever gets your mental processes firing as we dive in. Stay tuned. Hey there, this is Michelle Spiva, your Practical Priestess of Wisdom, and I do want to welcome you to today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. So we're going to be getting into some of the areas that I have been asked to cover, and so I'm finally starting to do them. So we're going to be talking about, um, I'm calling this the Wisdom Smack Dark Psychology Skills Training Series. And today we're going to be getting into who's changing your mind. So it's going to be a little detailed and you might want to listen to this one a few times because I'm going to be giving you a a few of the uh, slick ways that those in the know are getting you to behave uh, as they wish. So join me on the flip. I'll see you soon. All right. Thank you for joining me on the flip. And it's time for us to roll up our sleeves because I am coming to you with some insights that a lot of times you don't hear in the everyday, but that's how we do it here. We give you the wisdom. We give you the insights. So if you're ready, let's get into it. So when we're talking about who's changing your mind, what I'm talking about is those in the know, people who study this stuff and people who are paid handsomely to be able to persuade you. Now, in the past, I have talked about the godfather of public relations, aka propaganda, from the turn of the 20th century, Edward Bernays, who was the nephew on both sides to Sigmund Freud, and who was one of the main leaders in learning how to look at the crowd, psychology, and all of the different things that get people to move around like marionettes on a string. And I am not couching this as something bad. I am not. I'm just simply saying that when you're using wisdom and strengthening your mind and strengthening your ability to employ divine wisdom, the wisdom that supersedes the human knowledge, we do need to delve into these areas of um, psychology. Now, I don't like to use the term dark psychology, but it seems to be what people tend to know this level of psychology on. So that's the only reason why I'm using it. And I might change it because I don't like it that much. I might find another way to talk about this. So anyway, today we're going to be talking about who's changing your mind. And this is by no means exhaustive. That's why this is going to be a recurring series, um, you know, here and there. And so I'm going to try to cover a lot today, but just know that 
this is not going to be where, oh, I know all the stuff they're getting us with now, okay? So today I've picked out a, a few things and I found a one a couple of articles that I'm going to be referencing and one of my favorite authors is coming out with a new book that I'm quite excited about, Dr. Jonah Berger. His book is not, it's not yet um, out during um, at the, this current time of recording, but he does have a book coming out called The Catalyst, How to Change Everyone's Mind. And I am definitely going to be getting it because he is, he's phenomenal. Um, Contagious is another book that he has written of how things go viral and many other things. He is a uh, professor at the Wharton School of Business in uh, the University of Pennsylvania and on and on and on. But this is not about just his book. Um, Like I said, I'm going to be talking about a few paradoxes. And I will say that a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be referencing has been studied by uh, economists, by um, sociologists, and psychologists uh, by um, people who uh, work for large organizations, world organizations and the like. And some of this stuff is, you might have heard of, heard of it before, but some of it you might not have because it seems to be kind of within the scope of those um, behind those doors. Okay. So anyway, here we go. All right. So the first one I want to talk about is called Plain Folks Fallacy. And you've seen this one over and over again. Most recently, um, you saw it in a lot of the political um, situations, especially in 2016. And what this is, the plain folks fallacy, is when people of authority want to acquire your trust, they present themselves as average Joes. When in fact, because they have this authority, that simply means they're different from everyone else, but they appeal to, I'm just like you. And that is how they're able to change your mind on how you view them and thus how you view everything that they say to you. Right. So that's one. And like I said before, I'm going to be giving you, I think, about six or seven of these paradoxes, effects and that. And I'm going to be going through those quickly because I'm wanting to deal more so with five specific ways that Dr. uh, Berger talks about of how people can change your mind, okay? But this kind of like is the background to helping you understand uh, how this happens. Okay, so the plain folks fallacy, that's when people who are not like you convince you that they are like you, all right? The next one, and this one is just a quote by Voltaire, and it's called, it's gone on to become known as the behavioral inevitability. And it's simply put that history never repeats itself, but man always does. And the reason why this is not so commonly known is because people are taught that history uh, repeats itself. And there was a recent article that was done looking at uh, hindsight 2020 versus whether history is inevitable to repeat itself. And I like some of the juxtapositions that were presented in that they tracked the Great Depression of October 1929, and they tracked it uh, with similar conditions from 1990 and then again in 2007 through nine of uh, great upheavals in American history where all of these things, if we were to believe that history repeats itself, 
each one of them should have behaved the same. Whereas we had the Great Depression, but in 20, um, 2000, excuse me, uh, 1990, and again in 2008 or seven-ish or so, when we had the banks failing and all that kind of stuff, it did not happen the same. And so it was very interesting to see how it was not necessarily the situations, but more so how the people reacted. And so with this, and because you guys know that I study a lot of trends, I look for waves and patterns. Um, I am always looking for observable effects to see what's going to happen. And I always come up to where, you know, there is a huge amount of uncertainty. And, but with that uncertainty, there is one thing that remains the same besides death taxes and change, and that is people, human nature, right? And so with Voltaire, his behavioral inevitability rests on not the circumstances circumstances and situ- situations, but more so the element of people. If you track people, that will give you a better indicator of what is prone to happen than the events. And and with that, you look at people, you look at where they are in the zeitgeist and, and what's going on, and you up your chances of understanding how things will shake out. All right. So that's the uh, behavioral inevitability uh, situation. The next one, and this one, I'm going to actually tell you that put a pin mark on this because you've probably heard it before. And it is one of the biggest ones that that people in the know work on because they understand that it exists. Even if you don't, they do. Everything you uh, people want you to do, whether it's to buy a product, accept a belief pattern, support an initiative, it a lot of times is going to stem out of this next effect. And it's called the boomerang effect. All right. And what this boomerang effect says is that trying to persuade somebody to do something uh, can make them more likely to do the opposite. And you might have ca- heard of it as reverse psychology as the way people combat this, but I'm talking about a little bit more. So let me go back and start this over. So the boomerang effect is when you're trying to persuade something, someone to do something, that can actually make them more likely to do the opposite because the act of persuasion can feel like you're stealing someone's freedom. And by them doing the opposite, it makes them feel like they're taking their freedom back. And because um, the powers that be know this, they have effects to combat the boomerang effect, which, like I said before, you might be familiar with with reverse psychology, but there are many more. And um, just be aware that you think you might know how they can combat this with, you know, just some of the effects, but we'll talk about a little bit, uh, I'll talk about a few of them um, a little bit later. Okay. So I want to get through the last, what do I have? One, two, three, I have four more and they're pretty simple and common sense. And hopefully you're like, okay, that makes sense. So the next one is called apophenia, apophenia and apophenia. And this one is um, something that is running rampant right now. And apophenia is basically 
uh, the the way conspiratists, conspiracy theorists operate. So apophenia is the a tendency to perceive correlations between unrelated things because your mind can only deal with tiny sample sizes and assuming things are correlated creates an easier or a more comforting explanation for how the world works. Now, the reason why I put apophenia on here is because that is one of the areas that I am uh, highly sensitive to. Um, because I am a synergist and I have to synthesize, I'm always trying to be aware of whether my correlations and causations are falling over into the area of apophenia. Because the human mind is so powerful that if given enough time, we can make anything connect. Anything. And on top of that, apophenia is not that bad because what we fantasize, we prophesy meaning that we can put correlations together and then they come to pass. How many times over and over again have you seen something like on The Simpsons that was fantasy and they made these correlations and then lo and behold, 10, 15 years later, they come to pass. There was just a recent one that was done on the comedian Dave Chappelle. Love him. Hope to meet him one day. I've seen him in concert. He's great. (laughs) Anyway, uh, not concert, but you know, in one of his shows. Uh, But They have even done one that showed uh, like seven different things that he predicted that have come to pass. And so just be aware that even though apophenia is how we get an understanding of how conspiracy theories come out, that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. Okay. So the next one. Now, this one is one that is, I don't think it's diabolical as much as it's something that I just simply want you to be aware of because this is how people can play on your heartstrings and get you to do things because they understand this about you. And it's called the empathy gap. And what the empathy gap is, is when you personally underestimate how you'll behave when you're quote unquote hot, meaning that you're angry, you're aroused, or you're rushed. And then by you underestimating how you'll behave in these situations, that usually causes an inability for you to accurately foresee how your body's physical response to these situations will influence your decision making. So, Have you ever had a situation where you uh, were in peril? Maybe, and I I don't want to trigger anybody, but maybe you got stuck in an elevator with people and it got to be a little too long. And then you were not ready for the person you turned into when confined and taken uh, your power away to to escape. And so that's the part where they talk about you underestimating how you'll behave when you're in those situations. But then the back part is then you don't know how your body is going to physically react to the situation. How is your dopamine and your adrenaline um, and your neurotransmitters going to fire off and uh, influence your decision making? So maybe you have never been locked in a elevator. But you have been on a plane and over and over again, we see the empathy gap being played out uh, by people when they get on the plane and something happens, whether it is alcohol, drug, medication, or uh, simply um, a physical ailment firing off, people tend to do the craziest things. And there have been times when people have wanted to open the emergency door to get out. And I always want to know, 
Why did the person try to do that when they're back down on the ground and calm again? And I wish they would publish more of that information because that would tell us a lot of how this empathy gap is working. Now, because people in the know know that the empathy gap exists, whether you do or not, unfortunately, it can be exploitive. And it can be exploitive a lot of times by the media, mass media, by politics, um, by governments and the like. So just be aware of that, that even if you don't realize that there is an empathy gap between how you behave when you're at a normal baseline and then how you behave when you're in the hot zone and thus what happens when dopamine, adrenaline and all of that starts pumping through you, you become very vulnerable in how you make decisions. Just know that somebody could be staging this and pulling your levers for you to behave in a way that they put forth for you. Then the next one, it's called the Abilene Paradox. And believe it or not, most of the people have uh, found themselves in this paradox. And what it is, is it's when you're in a group and you decide to do something that basically no one in the group wants to do because everybody else is thinking mistakenly that you're going to be the only one who objects to the idea. So you quote unquote, get along to go along and nobody wants to do it, but everybody thinks everybody else is for it. And that is how you can have situations where they say things like mistakes were made. (laughs) And that brings me to the last one. And that's called weasel words. And weasel words are these phrases that they appear to have meaning, but really they don't convey anything tangible, like mistakes were made. Instead of saying, I made a mistake, they say mistakes were made. Well, who made the mistakes? But because of being able to say that, you pacify people without having to take any kind of uh, accountability for it. And when you say mistakes were made, People, for some reason, don't require you to outline what mistakes were made, okay? Um, Another example is many people believe, and another one is growth was solid last quarter. What kind of growth? What does that mean, you know? And usually, if you're looking at identifying weasel words, they they, they placate our need to contain and simplify. And there is this saying uh, that was put forth, I believe it was Daniel Daniel Kahneman who said that, um, from the famous uh, psychologist who uh, wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a a classic, you guys. I've, I've, I've talked about it before on the podcast. But he says that we have a problem with understanding and contemplating very large numbers and very small numbers. And thus that goes back to the one where I was talking about um where uh apophenia, uh, 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 where we have a hard time with working with tiny sample sizes. And so because of that, we make these assumptions and these correlations that don't necessarily exist. And thus uh, we try to make we make huge jumps to make sense of our world when it could possibly be just conspiracy. And then there's another thing that I wanted to say before I get into these uh, five ways that they can they change your mind. And that is that in our information age, information, uh, it moves very quickly. 
But you know what moves even faster? Erroneous information. And the reason why erroneous information moves faster is because it's more salacious. It's more uh, emotive. It's more of the, oh, you know, so think about recent disasters or things that people weren't ready for. And you'll find that the news of them always moved. It, it moved very fast. And the first news that usually moved after the initial was so far out there that it caused people to be like, oh, no. Whereas they had to come back and give you information to contain it. So be aware of just even how information moves. All right. So let's get into these five ways that people change your mind uh, as according to Dr. Berger. And um, I am very familiar with these being uh, trained in marketing. And so uh, no lies detected is basically what I'm going to say. So let's get into those. So I'm going to call them out and then I'm going to give you examples of each one just to make sure that you have them. All right. So uh, the five ways that Dr. Jonah Berger talks about the way people can change your mind is by reductions, shrinkage, alleviations and um, finding things to soothe you. All right. So the first one, and these are not in any particular order, but the first one he talks about is the ability to reduce uh, reactants. The second one is the way that they do this is um, not do that. But the, the second way he talks about is how they ease your sense of endowment. The third one is to shrink distance. The fourth one is to alleviate uncertainty. And then the fifth one is to find corroborating evidence. All right. So now that I've called them out, let's take them one by one. So to reduce reactance, let's first figure out what reactance is. So reactance is going to be that response that you have when you feel like somebody is trying to usurp your authority. You're going to act out. So reactance is exactly what it means. It's that negative response uh, to feeling like someone is trying to take over your control or take your control away. It's your reaction to feeling disempowered. Now, the way they <laughs> reduce your reactance is by offering you options because instead of just giving you one option and saying this is what you have to choose, they understand that you're going to have reactance. So why not make it seem like you have all the choice when you don't even realize they're only giving you a certain number of options, meaning that they're still taking your ability away, but they have configured it where they're going to give you options that all of them are acceptable to what they want you to do. So uh, this is their workaround. They offer you options that you can make. And then another one to combat this reactance is either they do that. So say, for instance, there no, there's no way to get you to... Uh, accept uh, options. So what they might do is they might show you a gap between what you think and what you do. And then by giving you power, they ask you, what would be your advice? And what they normally do is to ask you to tell advice or give advice for some person who is doing the, the very thing that you're currently doing. And then once you've given this advice, then they show you that, okay, well, that's your advice, but you're not doing that. So it's a way for you to come to the um, understanding that, hey, my own advice says I shouldn't be doing this. All right. And then um, what they will get you to do is they will get you to believe that it is your um uh, 
in, within your power to make this change. All right. So that's how they reduce your reactance. They do it by either offering you options with quotes around it, or they sh give you the power to give advice or to give insight, making you the expert. And then they kind of sort of sometimes kind of sort of or just blatantly point out where if you're the expert, you're not doing what you said for us to do. OK, so then the second one is that ease of endowment. And let me just say that, first of all, an endowment is when we get overly attached to the status quo. We love what is known. And so that status quo and what is known is called the endowment effect. And so because we tend to stick with what we know, they have to ease us away from it. And so to ease the, us away from it, what they'll do is they'll show you the cost or the penalty of continuing to do something. Um, and they'll do it by reminding you daily. So for instance, have you ever had it where, and I just recently had this and talked about it on the podcast I did. Um, that what they'll do is, is they will... Uh, here's an example, technology-wise, and I'll set it up this way. So if they want you to get used to moving forward, uh, Apple does it, a lot of tech firms do it. What they'll say is, is that by this date, this particular product, service, or system is going away. It will no longer be supported. If you want to continue using it, you will have to support it on your own. And they'll usually throw in a countdown clock. So that you will be reminded often that you only have a few more days. Have you ever gone to something on Google? Google is bad for this. And they'll say, as of this day, this will no longer be supported. You can use it at your will, but it will no longer be advanced. It will no longer be updated. There will be no support and there will be no continuing technology for it. How many people with Google Plus groups and all of that can give me an amen? So that is a, a big example of how they ease you away from your endowment. This is really how they work with Luddites and late adapters, you know, people who just do not want to give a, get, a, get rid of their flip phones, their rot rotary dials or whatever. Okay. So the third one we talked about is to shrink the distance. And this one is really important because this is one that is used all the time. You see, we have what's called a zone of acceptance. And this zone of acceptance in relation to distance is how close something is to what we um, believe or our current perspective. So our existing beliefs and our current perspectives. And the further away from that outside of your zone, the harder it is for them to get you to accept it. And so what they do is, is they use things that are, are adjacent to this zone of acceptance. I've talked about it in political terms. Uh, there is a word for that it's called um, the Overton window. When they want you to do something really, you know, drastic or believe something really wild, what they'll do is they'll back it back down to just close enough outside of the closeness of what you believe for that to be um egregious. And then they'll work you up to it. So they keep moving, they keep moving the center line. Okay. So an example of that would be. Way back when they were first coming up with cars, they uh, wanted people to buy cars. And so instead of just giving them a car, they made the car look as close to a horse and buggy as a carriage as possible. And they even named them horseless drawn carriages so that people would accept them. 
When Uber first came out with this technology of ride sharing and trying to get people to get in a car with a stranger who wasn't a taxi cab driver, instead of just going straight for the car, they commissioned a lot of limousines and what they would call their black car service because people were more used to that and they were more able to opt for that in the quote unquote aspiration of having this car service because that was something aspirational. Once they got people familiar with the Uber Black uh, uh, brand, they started moving people down to the point where they could get them into Uber X where you're ride sharing with people you don't even know. And, and so they keep moving and shrinking the distance between what you know and believe and, and perceive to what they want you to know and perceive. Okay, so let me hurry it up because I got two more. So alleviating uncertainty. There is an uncertainty tax that we pay when there is risk involved. Let's just say it. So for instance, there have been um, situations where they have asked people, uh, if I give you this gift card, uh, how much are you willing to pay for a $50 gift card? And people have gone up to as much as $20, $26 to think of it as a perceived discount and a great deal. But when they did the same thing and said, um, here is a, a, a lottery ticket or a scratch off with a potential to win uh, $50, how much are you willing to pay? It went down to $16, which was a decrease of 40%. And it is because of the uncertainty tax and the higher amount of risk. And so to alleviate uncertainty with the powers that be who know what they're doing, what they'll do is they will offer you a trial to, uh, to get you to commit. So whenever you see trials for new things, it is usually going to be because there are two major things at work. There is the uncertainty tax being mitigated, lessened, and there is the effect of what we would call reciprocity. Dr. Robert Caldini, with his six principles of influence, have talk, has talked about this one being a big one. So especially if there's something new, you don't know what to expect. There is inherent risk to it that it might not work. Therefore, they will give you a free risk trial. Okay. And the more it becomes uh, known, the trials either shrink or they go away. All right. So that's how they're able to alleviate your uncertainty. And then the fifth one is to find corroborating evidence. And this one is uh, this one is the most popular one that you might not have been aware was in effect. And what this is, is when going back to Robert Caldini uh, of one of the six of his influential um principles, he talks about social proof. Social proof is going to be testimonials. It's going to be other people uh, touting it or giving credence to something. It's the new it thing and how they find a way to get you to change your mind is by getting corroborating evidence of people close to you, your friends and your family and people who you know, like and trust inherently. So think about it. When Facebook first came on the scene outside of the uh, campuses, you had to have an invite. And so to get an invite became coveted because it was done by inner circles of families and friends. And so the more you got invites, the higher your propensity to join, because if everybody's doing it, it must be okay. 
right? And so they understand that in numbers of using corroborating evidence of people who you trust and you know that they won't do anything stupid, they can get you to change your mind. So those are the ways dark psychology that they use. And I only got a few seconds, so let me quickly go back through this. So five ways that they go to about changing your mind is they want to reduce your reactance to something. Um, they want to ease your attachment or your endowment. They want to shrink the distance from what you believe to what they want you to believe. And then they want to alleviate uncertainty by giving you a, a free trial or uh, that. And then they want to find corroborating evidence by offering you social proof and by getting people that you know, like, and trust to approve or put their stamp of approval on it. So guess what? My time is up. I thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spivey, your Practical Priestess of Wisdom with another podcast. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.